On June 23rd, 1996, Mario and Company crossed into a new plane of existence when the Nintendo 64 was officially released. For the first time in Nintendo's history, games could now be presented in three dimensions. A vast improvement over the Super Nintendo, this leap in visual quality opened the door to new creative gameplay ideas while still maintaining the use of its classic cartridges to deliver the games. With it came a slew that have now become classics or otherwise notorious in their own right. And so today we devote a couple of hours to the N64 as it hits 20 years old. So down the warp pipe we go for another anniversary episode next on Downloadable Content. and welcome to downloadable content i am brian and with me we have ron hello everyone and ron alone it's ron and ron alone day i like these days they're usually quiet and you get to self-reflect yes you get to we get to introspect we get to reflect we get to generalize dispute and bullshit our way through an episode I love the bullshitting part. I really love the bullshitting through an episode part. Well, that's that's you get 100% pure grade A bullshit right here on downloadable content. The finest. <laughs> the finest. The finest manure in all in all of the county. Yes, this is the full, the the most quality bullshit because that's what we strive to give on this very very fine sophisticated program. We may have. Um, Additional people coming into this episode, and as luck would have it, we may have one coming in right this very second. A new challenger has appeared. A new challenger has appeared. So let's add a Wyatt. And let's see if, if the internet finds him. And do we, we have a Wyatt? <laughs> Good evening. Good evening! Wyatt joins us from the far land of the internet. He too can help us heap this heap on the pile of bullshit that will be this episode. Oh yeah? Why is it a pile of bullshit? Well, we just we just started, and so Ron and I were talking about how we you know on the when it's an episode that's just Ron and myself, we can we can be reflective, we can introspect, we can bullshit our way through an episode. So uh, have we already started recording then? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for about two minutes. So we we haven't dived in yet. So welcome. Well, I'm glad I was able to make it. Welcome. Runs into the episode, panting, gasping. What did I miss, guys? Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. I'm almost here. Give me a second. I just got to catch my breath and not throw up along. <laughs> the runners high but yes we'll be talking about the n64 on this episode as it hits 20 years of age in fact um you know today it's june 5th but in about two and a half weeks it'll actually be 20 years old 
coming out in Japan June 23rd, 1996. I'm not sure how I feel about it. That is already 20 years old. Yeah, the more of these anniversary episodes I do, the more I I go, really? It was that long ago? I'm going to say something that that we think is dumb, but it's going to happen. There's a good chance that we're going to be doing this long enough that we're going to be doing a 20th anniversary episode of the GameCube. You know... It, it's entirely possible. I mean, it would downloadable content would have to go for another five yeah. years. Yes, that well, would, considering we've been doing this for at almost, least five years already. Yeah, this is this is the year number six. So you know, if we get to year eleven of downloadable content, we will get to the twenty years of GameCube. But that's five years away. We have the N sixty four to talk about. So before we dive in. Just want to remind everyone out there on the wide world of the internet that every single episode of downloadable content can be found on our new shiny, non-pollutionary, biodegradable website at www.dlcpodcast.com. It's gluten-free, and you can be sure to check out every single episode there. You can check out bios, send us feedback, give us suggestions for episodes future episodes let me know if you want to be in on an episode and you know just or if you just want to say hey then feel free to do so it's all there on the website so dlcpodcast.com so with that gentlemen let us dive in i mean we i think uh i know i definitely own an n64 ron you did why did you ever have an n64 as a kid i did actually um it's actually kind of funny that you say 20 years ago, because I remember my parents were very concerned about me playing video games. Um, and so they waited quite some time for me to do anything game-related. They waited until my 10th birthday, and on my 10th, I got a Sega Genesis. Um, and soon after that, about two years, I remember them complaining very much that, didn't we just get you a gaming system when I think I saved up some allowance money and I made a deal with them for Christmas, and I ended up getting an N64 so I have a lot of fond memories of playing that all the way up until I left for college when I was – so yeah, I probably had that N64 for three or four years. And then after that point, I had to save up for a GameCube. So I had about three or four years at the end of my high school that I remember playing the heck out of that thing with my brother and my friends. Yeah, I mean this was – I did not own – I ended up uh, purchasing my stepbrother's N64 uh, in a in a deal in which I – I really won out because, uh, you know, back when, side story, back when, you know, I was a kid and my stepbrother was, you know, he's my older stepbrother, so he was dating and, you know, he was of the mindset that the best way to win over uh, a girl was to buy her everything. Oh, that, that, that poor, poor man, literally and figuratively, actually. So... (laughs) Any time he wanted to buy her some shiny piece of cubic zirconia from Walmart, uh, he it would basically become uh, my stepbrother's bargain basement, and I would just rob him blind. Really, it was just you know when if I had money from working at McDonald's and he didn't, he'd just be like, I- "I'll I'll sell you anything. I just need you know money, you know, to keep her happy." So uh, everything must go. Everything must go. So I ended up getting his N64 and all of his games, and it was like six, seven games at least. Uh, two controllers, memory card, 20 bucks. 
That was a <laughs> yeah. That's a good deal considering the car- the cartridges by themselves are what like sixty bucks. I can't even get that good of a deal on eBay. It's just <laughs> just let alone you know this is one of the things. Oh my god, this is this is excellent entertainment value. Of course, I will definitely give you this twenty dollar bill for all of your N sixty four. You're getting literally pennies to the dollar in value. Oh yeah, it was great. So it became mine and. Uh, I got to play, you know, these the the games that we will definitely dive into. I mean, we let's let's get the elephant in the room right out of the way. Well, there, there's like three. There's so we'll deal with the first one. We'll deal with the we'll deal with the first uh, elephant in the room. Probably still one of the greatest uh, multiplayer games ever to come out in history, and that is Super Smash Brothers. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, when did that come? 1998, I want to say. It was not a launch title. Yeah, now, that, that was Mario sixty four and Pilot Wings. <laughs> yeah, the, the definitely an odd one. Okay, first release was January twenty first, nineteen ninety nine. Yep. So we're talking uh, three years after the N sixty four actually launched. But oh my god, Wait, you know I play that game now, and I'm like, oh my polygons, <laughs> so many polygons. But this game, I think, you know, was definitely one of those games that I kind of flipped the fighting genre on its head. Um, And I say that because I grew up, before playing this game, I grew up on Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter. I mean, those are my my fighting, my go-to fighting games. And then this thing comes along, and it's a mashup... uh, comprising you know just nintendo characters yeah and no blood yeah no blood guts gore you know it's it's very lighthearted, very silly uh it's not it's not every game in which you can hurl a bomb at a character and watch them fly off the stage well associated with that just anyone that remembers that time period go back and look up original super smash brothers TV commercials. You have to do that. Because the one where they're singing Me and You happy together, they're singing the Friends song, and it's the four (laughs) people in costumes. Yeah, but it's the four people in costumes walking up like that nice hilly, grassy knoll, and they start kicking each other. It's Mario, Bowser, and... Yoshi. Yoshi, yes, Yoshi. I don't think Bowser was there, was he? I have to check, but... I swore it was... No, Star Fox, I'm sorry. It might have been Star Fox. <laughs> but if you ever remember those or you haven't, look up the original ones. And that's the way this game was kind of advertised. It was it was definitely unique. You're definitely right about that, Brian. And it was coming out at a time where more people on other systems, were, which systems were very much trying to go towards photorealism. They were trying to go towards gritty and brutal. Um, and games were becoming more and more violent. This weird anomaly, Smash Brothers, comes out as sort of just this really funny, kiddish version of a fighting game. A lot of people try to call it that. And I remember playing this with my f- brother, and we'd have two people over, and all four of us would be shouting down in the basement laughing. And, you know, it was that one of those things where it was like, hey, this seems like a really big thing. It's it's sort of bizarre. It was sort of felt great to be on that roller coaster of how popular that game became in the second iteration before people really knew about it. Like, just to be there right when it started. But... Unlike a lot of launches for today's game titles, this kind of came out of nowhere. Or at least, did you feel that way? 
Um, for me specifically, I I saw this in Nintendo Power. I was like, huh, a fighting game with Nintendo characters. This seems interesting. I saw the commercial. I was like, okay, this seems dumb. Then I went to a friend's house and played it, and then I'm like, okay, this is the one I actually have to get. <laughs> <laughs> because this is the sort of mentality I have when I saw it, and I was like, this looks like a, like the, who would win in a fight, like Link or, Link or, or Bowser, or who would win in a fight, Donkey Kong versus Yoshi. And it's right. just like, it, it's that, like, kitty, it's that kitty mentality of like, arguing about who would win and like there's no blood it's, it's just all like s slapstick comedy and right uh, and, and things like that but it's taken in like a in a visual form and then you can actually play those characters and they have like the iconic moves like mario throws a fireball uh link spins around with the with the master sword Yoshi tongues people. Yeah, Kirby sucks people in. You know, it's... Yeah. And so, you know, considering that, at least for the three of us, we were 13, 14 years old when this game, you know, came out, suddenly mm -hmm. all of those hypotheticals that you would talk about with your friends, you know, would be who would, you know, beat each, who would win in a fight, Link or Mario, you know, the, the iconic characters. And finally, Nintendo gives us a game where you could actually play that out. Yeah. And it's on multiple stages, too. Like, you had... Mushroom Kingdom, you had Hyrule Castle. Hyrule Castle. You had Kirby Dreamland. You had yeah, uh, the Yoshi, that weird Yoshi, <laughs> Yoshi story level. Yeah, Yoshi story. You had Onet from Earthbound. You had. Uh, I just remember Hyrule Castle. I just remember playing that over and over and over. Oh again. god, Hyrule like... Castle. The only reason, okay, that's a huge know, board. Yeah, the only reason you, the, uh, I don't know about you guys, but for me, my friends and I, we always played Hyrule Castle, and the only reason why was because it was the only thing large enough to fit all the people on and have it be like you could still have one-on-one -on -one fights or it could be close up in two-on-two because that zoom what the camera does is. Um, is even in the the 64 version. Yep. And it's sure it's a 480p picture at most, getting zoomed out on a freaking CRT TV, but it's still a a decent enough picture that you can see what's going on. Oh yeah, and it's you know some of the other stages that had you had board hazards like uh, Planet Brinstar. Now that's one that takes me back. The planet Brinstar, or even uh, Fox's board, where you're fighting on on um, this is Corneria. Yeah, you're fighting on the the, the ship as um, Arkwings, right? That's the name of the their well, ship. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, you had obviously the Mushroom Kingdom stage. Uh, Country had a stage. It was like yes, it had the water underneath it. Yeah. That brought you to a watery grave very very quickly yeah yeah, yeah. that water you couldn't swim in that water you sunk like a goddamn rock or am i thinking of melee because i know donkey kong's board uh no i'm thinking of melee that was introduced in melee but donkey kong did have a board where um it, it definitely it had um it played the donkey kong country theme that was his background and 
Um, although one of my favorites was Pokemon Stadium because the terrain kept changing. Yeah, like there's some things that you see today, and you're like, this is amazing. This is like flavorful and colorful. Like that was in the original game, guys. And Captain Falcon had a board. I mean, all of them. All there were twelve characters in the original Smash Brothers. You had eight to start and four unlockable. The four unlockables, for those who don't know, were Jigglypuff, Ness, Yoshi, and Luigi. No, I'm sorry. It was Luigi, Ness, uh, Jigglypuff, and... Yeah, it must have been Yoshi. I thought it was Luigi. I said Luigi, didn't I? Oh, it was Captain Falcon. No, what am I thinking? Captain Falcon was the unlockable, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but you had all you had those twelve characters, and there was just something very gratifying about knocking somebody off the board with a paper fan. Oh, that fan was a beast back then. There's <laughs> also the satisfying crush you get with the home run bat when it actually you know Ping! does a home run. <laughs> and and even even now, even in in current Super Smash Brothers, if somebody got the hammer, everyone's running. Everyone's just running because, you know, you know, you have the hammer. You could be knocked out at, at 30%. And that was another thing that uh, was interesting just from a technical standpoint. This game, you know, it's a fighting game, but it didn't have life bars. It uses percentages. Yeah. Right. I mean, so there, there are several things that I definitely want to cover about this. One is that it was revolutionary in many ways. One, it was able to be comedic in a, in a genre that at that time, everything was going more and more serious. Yep. Serious, so that was bloody, one thing. brutal, rip your spine out, have right. lizards biting people's heads off. It only, um, it also took away and kind of changed the idea of the battleground. It didn't make it 3D, but it expanded it out much more than, it almost kind of brought it back to original Mario, like the one where you would have the power and you'd fight amongst each other or joust. Or those older arcade games, it kind of went back to an arcade style. Um, it took away life bars, and, and or at least it twisted them around. So it became less and less about the kill, and more and more about just like knocking people around the stage, which added, again, more comedic value to it. Um, and then the other thing that I think needs to be talked about is the fact that it was a very small kind of company inside of Nintendo, HAL. I believe this was their first game that kind of very gently have been working on this for a while so this again I really do feel like this came out of nowhere at least for me I was not expecting it when I was a kid I don't think anyone was expecting to take off as much as it did and then when the second edition came out on GameCube and the entire thing exploded it's now known as one of the first esports in some ways or one of the first electronic big competition games I don't think anyone was expecting that when this first came out because it was supposed to be for fun it was supposed to be this kind of zany silly get together with some friends and beat each other up yeah um as for how this was not their first game how how laboratory also gave us uh earthbound okay um, and kirby, kirby. kirby yeah but their their claim to fames are kirby earthbound pokemon stadium and super smash brothers yeah that that, that, that that those are theirs and also this was, at least for me, the first fighting game where you could have more than two. Mm, very true. You, you, you had four controller slots on the N64. Yeah. And it was also four. If you could find four people that had four N64 controllers, then you could do four people. Which... Or, or, or play against, you know, two, two human, two computer, whatever. Yeah. 
you, you could do that. And even single player was a lot of fun to get through because yeah, there was, t I think, 10 stages. And you had, like, the little mini games, like, break the targets and, you know, get through the this mini stage the fastest. You had the fighting polygon team. And then there was fighting Master Hand at the end. Yeah, Master Hand. Where for the first time you're fighting, you're like, oh my god, what the fuck is this guy doing? And then after like your fifth or sixth time through, you're like, okay, now I know what's going on. Then you see the, the body him. There's also that nice little internal story of like how this is actually going on. Like what what is actually occurring. Slightly Toy Story-esque. Yeah. Right. It was a really kind of very cute plot that didn't feel like it was taking itself too seriously, but there was still actually, in some ways, a better definable plot than other ones that tried to be more complicated. So, or, it, or at least the premise. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's a ton of fun. I still play it. I have it on uh, Wii uh, for Virtual Console. This is, this, the original game is still a staple uh, for tournaments. I mean, this was played, this, this the, the, the original gets played at every single PAX. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, if not in a, in a great big tournament, then definitely in one of the, the console tournaments that the convention regularly holds. Mm -hmm. So, the, the, you know, even though the game came out, you know, 17 years ago, I mean, it's still widely played. And right. And then spawned, you know, the three sequels that came after it. And then something I feel like that needs to be brought up now and probably will apply to these other games that we're going to talk about later is... This is before the internet, at least as we know it, or when it became all-encompassing live journal, Facebook, um, spoilers everywhere, online journalism. So when you found those secret characters for me, it was a delight because I had no idea what to expect. And then, you know, when if you lost on them, you'd have to, you know... Do it again. Do it again. You'd have to recreate yeah. the, the, the condition to do it again. I, I, you, be I believe... You beat the game once, any any way, any 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 fashion. You get Luigi. You beat. And I remember the game. when that happened. I finally beat Master Hand for the first time, and me and my brother were high fiving each other. And all of a sudden, we're like, "Wait, there's secret characters in this game? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, no one. There was. I, in some ways, I really do miss that sort of like the pre-internet era of games, where I remember logging on for that game, uh, for some of the original Pokemon games and other ones. And they'd be like, oh, here's how you beat this game. Did you know that there might be 16 secret There's only four. But people were, like, coming up with these random ideas because there wasn't this huge, immediate, accessible information online. And a lot of games now are built with that in mind. Like, you know that when the most recent Smash Bros. came out, they told you um, who most of the secret characters were. They told you how many there were going to be. With this first one, I had no idea. So I just remember playing it and having fun playing it just to see what I'd find and unlock again. Well, when I first played it, I saw there was eight characters. Like, oh, there's eight characters. That's not a lot, but it's enough for the four people. And then I unlocked it, Luigi. And I was like, oh, they have hidden characters. <laughs> I see what they're doing here. Yeah, I approve of this message. Yeah, there were, there were four unlockable characters and um, unlockable um, hidden uh, stages. I think there was one or two. Unlockable stages. Um, yes, th there was one unlockable stage. That was that was the eight bit um, Mario Brothers. The the, okay, that was the yeah. the classic Mushroom Kingdom. 
And you, to unlock that, for example, you had to beat the game with all eight original characters. Uh, memory serves Luigi you unlock by being the game at once. You unlock Ness by being the game on easy. Jigglypuff was being the game on hard. I think Captain Falcon was being the game on normal. Uh, you're about half right. <laughs> okay, well, correct me then. Alright, so Ness is you beat single player starting at three lives. Difficulty has to be normal. No continues. Alright. Jigglypuff just beat the game once. Captain Falcon, you beat the game on any difficulty. No continues. Under 20 minutes. So you had to speed run that. And Luigi was, you had to pass the, uh, you had to do the, um, beat all the eight, the, um, break the targets, uh, bonus board with the eight characters. Okay. So. And then, and then Nintendo would take that and just go crazy with oh, yeah. later games. Yes. Well, that's later games. That's, that's not, that's not the other That's not the N64. So let us move on. So who wants to take another elephant in the room? I brought after you. I came in late. All right. I will do the second elephant in the room. Probably arguably the most popular title in on the Nintendo 64. Past Super Mario. We're going to go to Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. I figured as much. Um, Mario 64 was a launch title, so it's kind yeah. of unfair there. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to Ocarina of Time, which I, Brian, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first game ever reviewed by Famitsu that got 40 out of 40. I will look that up. But you go on and talk. You you go on and talk. I will look. I up. mean, we've done. I mean, we've done entire episodes on Zelda and. Yes, we have. Honestly, I would honestly say to, for for a more for a more expanded version of this following discussion, go listen to that episode. Go I'm listen. Sure. To, go listen to the Zelda episode. Yeah, go listen to the Zelda episode because we go into a lot more detail there. But the original, when it first came out, it was November twenty first, nineteen ninety eight. Right? Yes, nineteen ninety eight, um, and. This was the first 3D Zelda title. And everyone, like, at least everyone that I knew that had a Super Nintendo was like, oh, this, this, this Zelda game is going to be fantastic because uh, Link to the Past was so good. And having a 3D is going to be even better. And at the time, I was like, it's 3D. I don't know how good Nintendo's good at the 3D stuff just yet. And then we get... Then we get this this gem. Uh, you are correct. It's the first game that got the perfect forty out of forty from Famitsu. Okay. So it was the first. So yeah, it's just a crazy, crazy, amazing, um, just masterpiece of a game. It's. It's something that I find interesting. I know I wasn't there for the Zelda episodes, so I feel a little more comfortable just weighing in. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> what, what I think about is that I actually think of Ocarina of Time a lot like 
um, Final Fantasy VII. It was in the right place at the right time. It was an opener for a brand new time period of better animation, better graphics, the switch over into 3D, which is something that um, Final Fantasy VII really benefited from. I feel like Ocarina of Time was just there at the correct moment to capture people. Um, again, Zelda obviously had a lot more things going for it. It had a bigger base of fans, I believe, before that point. Um, it was a bit better known. And, you know, looking back at it, Ocarina of Time is a much more... It's aged better than Final Fantasy VII. I will say that every moment. Um, no, I, 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 I agree. I, I'll agree with I was going to say, I don't, I don't think anyone's going to argue that point. It's definitely aged better, but I still think it, it does need to be said that this is a game that definitely benefited from just kind of being there. Because one thing that I see all the time online is whenever someone brings up Final Fantasy or Zelda or these older series, they go, oh, that one's overrated. And I hear that a lot about Ocarina of Time as they try to argue which one was the better one. Is it Wind Waker? Is it X? Is it Y? Um, I still feel like one thing to talk about about Ocarina of Time is that, yes, it was definitely in the right place at the right time, but it is also aged gracefully. It has done a great job. You can go back and play that game now, and yes, there's going to be some things that are going to be outdated, but not in the same way as other games. It is aged pretty well for what it is. I mean, I'm looking at screenshots now, and probably the, the biggest offense I have to, to Ocarina of Time is from a graphical standpoint, it's the, stereo, it's the stereotypical like 3D syndrome of everything's not blocky and like really sharp angles, but you can tell there's definitely some polygons here going on. Compared to Final Fantasy VII, where it's like, oh my god, like how are your arms connected and how uh, sloppy some of the the polygons look on the flat, like almost not hand drawn because they weren't, but like static backgrounds of a lot of the stages. I suspect that they probably cleaned a bunch of that up though in the 3DS release because obviously Nintendo knows how popular this game was, and so they they redid it for 3DS. Yeah, but I'm I'm looking at like the original. They were, like, yeah, the N64 screenshots. Um, not as egregious. Yeah, that's not as bad. Um, if memory serves, I think this was also America's first introduction to the story, like the actual story in Zelda. And I guess by that I mean not the Zelda's in, in a deep slumber. You have to rescue her by reuniting the Triforce, or you have to save the land of Hyrule from this evil pig sorcerer but like the, the the actual like story of the world of Hyrule of Princess Zelda is the princess she's a kind person who knows that something is going on and wants you Blink this, this young boy who was adventuring out looking to find himself and find out where he actually came from to stop the the, the Gerudo Ganondorf from influencing the king in a nefarious way. And then we get to see all the shit show that happens afterwards. Well, I mean, that's one of the great things, again, that I, I'm going to relegate again to Final Fantasy VII and this kind of era in gaming. The transition from 2D to 3D. 
not many genres of game. Um, RPGs did, but not action RPGs. Um, new didn't really know how to tell a story, and 3D allowed st stories to be told in a brand new way. And again, Ocarina of Time and Final Fantasy VII benefited from that because it, it allowed for that expansion. Game systems were bigger, they had more to them, they were able to do more than they had previously, and I think that's something that needs to be remembered. I think the biggest the biggest benefit is with 3D, you could show emotion a lot. I want to say easier because you have to code it properly and animate it properly. But if you hit the right emotion in tune with the right moment and the right set of music playing, it, it felt a lot more evocative and you could relate to it a lot better mm. compared to the 2D, where even even in 2D games like for Final Fantasy, like the other Final Fantasies, like four, five, or six, sure there's a, there's a lot of like sad moments or, or positive moments, but you don't see that emotion on their faces or, or right. in their body language. And I mean, I'm someone who's an English major and a master, so you know, I'm supposed to pontificate all day about the superiority of the written word and the ability to express yourself just with words or oh, bu bullshit. thoughts. Bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. I'm calling bullshit right there. Okay. For, so, for as good as the English language is in writing and describing scenes and emotions and mental states, <laughs> if you have a really good actor or a really good actress and you have the proper setting, mood, lighting, like all, all the scenario stuff that happens in like movies and shit like that, that can be just as evocative of emotion and displaying it without any words being said. Right, and so that's, that's what I was kidding, dude. Don't worry, I wasn't saying <laughs> 2D's better. I was, what I was saying was that um, that's one thing that 3 was able to do is just able to draw people into the story better, and I think we should always remember that, and that's one reason why we can look so fondly back at these games. We look back at um, Mario and the original 2D original games for being great because they were the first games that ever came out. And then we can remember the current games, um, or this genre, as the ones that kind of started to really evolve it in from 2D into 3D, into what we now see as gaming. And I think Ocarina of Time really nailed that because it was a launch title. It was a flagship game for Nintendo. It's, it's definitely me saying a tribute to it, but also just remembering his plays in history as a good thing. Yeah, I mean, this, this was the first Zelda game that I played from beginning to end. And this is game actually got me, you know, interested in the Zelda franchise because until that point, my experience with Zelda was the NES Zelda, you know, when I was five and just, you know, 10 minutes into it, be like, it got bored with it because I didn't know what the hell to do. Um, but this this particular game was was very well done and very narrative heavy. I mean, this was a long game. This I was... believe normal playthrough time is like twenty five hours. Which is assuming you go through and like you're slow. I don't say not not slow per se, but like you pace yourself. You're you're you're, you're riding. Oh god, I forget Epina? the name. Epina, yeah, yeah, Epina through, um, through Hyrule Fields, and eventually teleporting around when you eventually get the the songs to do so. But... Oh yes, I mean all the all the songs. I mean, and at the time, you know, 
you know, now we've had games that are far more, you know, bigger and expansive, but you know, you're, you, you get out on the Hyrule field for the first time and you're like, Oh my God, this is yeah. huge. Yeah, you, my yeah, mind you, has been blown. Yeah, yeah. You get out of the forest after getting told by literally a talking tree that you're, that you need to go out and, and you're not, you're not part of the forest people. You're actually a Hyrulean. Now get the hell out of our forest. Do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lazy bum. Get out of here! So and you go out into the field, and it's like it's like bright blue skies, a little bit of clouds, but like you get the sensation of like it's rolling hills, some trees, but like it, it's this wide open area of like farmland and just general beautiful landscape. Relatively speaking, to one to to the mindset of being a 15-year-old or 14-year-old kid playing this game for the first time. It was it was mind-blowing and really, really well done. I mean, yes, I wish Link kind of had a can of Raid for uh, for Navi. <laughs> hey! Hey! Yeah. Listen! I, listen. I, I felt that for as much as I enjoyed that game, I would have enjoyed it more if I didn't have, you know, Navi every five minutes. Hey! And just like, no, shut up. Oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> I, I needed... I was pretty new to gaming when I got this game, so I needed Navi. Need- I clung to her. <laughs> it would, like, you know, there'd be annoying when she'd tell you the same tip five or six times, but then every so often I'd walk into a dungeon, like, say, at the Water Temple, and go, hey, hey, Navi, tell me what to do. <laughs> uh, I'm lost without you. Give me guidance. Oh, Help me. I mean, to, to be fair, Water Temple was probably the end of several people's uh, playthroughs of that game. Especially if you hit the glitch. Yeah. I felt so satisfied when I finally beat it. Because again, this is when I first started gaming. I remember beating this for the first time and it was a good feeling. Um, to kind of advance it a little bit more, let's talk about the either the lesser known, less respected, but also sometimes more praised cousin Majora's Mask. I'm guessing you guys have already talked about Majora's Mask a lot. In in the Zelda uh, line, yes, we did. So, so just very briefly, then um, I remember finally beating Ocarina of Time. I think by the time Majora's Mask came out, or soon before, getting that game, and again, I was kind of reintroduced to how awesome the N64 was. I think I remember I liked Majora's Mask for a few reasons. One, I liked the tone. Um, I was just kind of hitting the end of high school, so I was able to kind of really appreciate the darker tone and sort of some of the new weird things he was trying to do. It definitely tried to reinvent the genre, and the N64 for that time was able to show that. Uh, and in relation, I believe the that's... I didn't have the Rumble Pack. And I know we're going to talk about this later. I didn't have the Rumble Pack for when I played Ocarina of Time, but I had it for Majora's Mask. So I might have a little bit more of a tactile memory of Majora's Mask just because I had that feeling of whenever Zelda, not Zelda, whenever Link would get smacked around, I'd feel it. Whack, and yeah. So, yeah. So it's kind of great to see this system bookended by two of the most well-known Zelda games. I I felt that Majora's Mask, you know, it. anytime you have a game that deals with time as a plot element... I always get a little wary of it because because it's like, okay, now you're dealing with time and time travel. How are you going to do this without, you know, making four billion plot holes? (laughs) 
Brian knows my my reasoning behind why I don't play Majora's Mask. So now I'm curious, but I understand we should probably move on before we get sucked into that debate. Yeah. yeah. Before we, if, if you want to hear it, go listen to the Zelda episode. Go listen to the Zelda episode. Yeah, just before, you'll get you know tw- it's like Ron kind of rants about this game the way I do Resident Evil Six. So it's a. Uh, Huh, okay. I'll definitely want to ask about it, but again, I do not want to get us off track of, you know, the entire freaking N64. But for what it was, I liked it. I liked that the N64 was able to kind of house both of these games, and they were able to be very different. Um, And I am correct that Majora's Mask was near the end of the N64 existence, correct? Yeah, this came out uh, in October 2000. So yeah, we were about a year away from the GameCube at this point. Right. And so it was kind of also interesting to see the graphics were a bit better than on the Ocarina of Time. It was able to do different things and it was able to, you know, they had more control of it. So it was kind of a interesting thing to remember. I remember that was the last games I had for the N64. So starting and ending with the same series and seeing how during the life of a console, how developers can take the the parts and the code inside of that console and make things better or worse, I found really interesting as a kid. So... I'll say two more things about Majora's Mask before we move on. First of all, the reason why the graphics were better wide is that the game uh, needed, you needed to have something called the expansion pack for the N64 because this game took up more space and more memory than Ocarina of Time did. So it needed the expansion pack to be able to process all that. Now I remember that. I remember getting the expansion pack just so I could play Majora's Mask. Yep, you had to have the expansion pack for Majora's Mask. And secondly... As a, you know, still, you know, this came out in 2000, so I was, how old was I? I was 18. Yeah, I was yeah, I was 18 when this game came out. 18? No, that can't be right. No, you were younger than that. Yeah, my math is... I was 14. I was, I'm way off. You were 15. I, was I met you way when you were 18. Off. Yes, I was way <laughs> off. I'm like, 2000? No, wait a minute, I wasn't in college yet. Jesus Christ. Uh, Can you go to college to be better at this sort of thing? I mean, really. Well, I didn't go for math. I'm an art major. That's what happens. <laughs> like, honestly, we don't use numbers and, 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 and science. We're, we, we listen to the muses of our soul. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. See, this is a podcast with three creative people that numbers know. It just doesn't exist. But <laughs> What are numbers? What are numbers? And, the, and there would be times in Majora's Mask that I would just stand out in Termina Field and just watch the moon slowly descend. And things go slightly batshit, yeah. Yeah, just like, hmm. And I would be curious, like, hmm, so... Because the game tells you, you know, don't let the moon crash. You have three days. So, you know, me being curious, like, well, what does happen if you let the... I'll, I'll save it, and then... Surely it can't be that bad. Like, what happens when the moon crashes? And then you get... Exactly the... what happens when a moon crashes into a planetoid. Yeah, and so you get probably... Um, you get the line of the game, which I think is why it's life motto. <laughs> You've met with a terrible fate, haven't you? <laughs> I feel like, Wyatt, if you're going to get a tattoo, that should be it. But anyway... Uh... <laughs> I'll keep it in mind, but... <laughs> Moving along, let's drift away from the Zelda. And let's see if I can get some some non-Nintendo properties into this. Well, you said there was a third elephant in the room, and if I think it is what I think it is, we didn't talk about this beforehand, so I might be off. But is it perchance Goldeneye? It's not the third elephant, but... Uh, that was Mario 64, but... 
Okay, let's go. Let's, let's, you want to get that out of the way, or you want to keep jumping around? Mario 64 came with the console. It's kind of unfair. And, okay. And Mario 64, again, last year we spent five episodes celebrating Mario, so... <laughs> so Mario 64 is Mario 64 is Mario 64. Moving on. The end. Yeah. Okay, right. good. I'm happy with that. I can deal with that. <laughs> GoldenEye 007, which was the one I was going to because... Yes. This is... Okay, I do not play FPSs. This... You have to give me a really, really good reason to play a first-person shooter. GoldenEye was it. And I think we're, we can all agree was that this game, this game right here, began the, the massive uh, popular genre that it's become. The, the whole idea of multiplayer. You know, it started with GoldenEye, then Halo took that, and... I, 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 will, I will... I I think the progression for me, Brian, is Doom, for, for first-person shooters specifically... That's Doom fine. I never to, played Doom, so... Doom to GoldenEye to Halo to your Call of Duty and Battlefield bullshits. Or even, or you know, even, you know, to current games like Overwatch, for example. But, yeah. Overwatch. Sorry, that, sorry, saying, no, we're not yeah, talking about saying, that. We can talk all about Overwatch in the halftime break. Yeah, but GoldenEye 007. Now, I have not seen the movie on which this is based. <laughs> it, it, okay, it is normal, stereotypical James Bond. I, well, stuff. I, I, I figured as much, but to, to see Pierce Brosnan reduced to an N64 uh, polygons and everything was actually it's kind of actually hilarious in hindsight but i really loved this game i was actually riveted by the story and the gameplay all the different guns you can get well i remember one reason why i was drawn to this game um because i i think this is the first thing that i played that was a first person shooter but one reason why I was drawn to it is I wasn't allowed to watch Bond as a kid. I was very sheltered. We didn't go to see any movies that were PG-13 or R or anything like that. So I was like, oh, this is going to be risky for me to play this game. So that was part of, part of it for me. Um, the other thing was it, was it was generally a good game. I remember enjoying the plot and being sort of riveted by it, trying to figure it out. Because, um, again, it was a new experience. And one thing I want to touch upon is that GoldenEye is interesting because it's before twin stick shooting. So if you go back and try yep. to play the original GoldenEye, you are you end up a little confused <laughs> for good reason um, because it, it uses a different set of controls before things became standardized via Halo by twin stick shooting. Now you had on the computer you had this big long history of first person shooters with Doom, with Quake Arena, which is also known as one of the best multiplayer first person shooters. Um, and that sort of setup, but this is the first time I feel like first-person shooters was brought to the consoles and took off. One reason because of it is that you had split-screen shooting. That's something that you did not have on computers. So I remember sitting downstairs with four friends on a very tiny TV, all playing the exact same game, yelling at each other for screen peeping as we're trying to blow each other up with proxy mines. But you couldn't do that as easily with computers, or it was a little bit more limiting. Computers were more expensive. Um, you know, you had to build your own a lot of that time period. So this for me was 
one of the reasons why GoldenEye was so popular, because you could have split-screen shoot um, playing, you could have split-screen shooting, you could play with your friends in the exact same room. And, that, and that's like probably the main benefit to the like the success and the eventual like growth of shooters as a whole for the multiplayer genre aspect of it is is that sense of having your friends be in the same room as you uh, seeing the same thing you are reacting at the same time you are to all the shooting and killing that's going on and it, like it, it, it's not meant to in like in a like a harmful way it's meant to be like in, in a playful way again obviously but <clears throat> the also keep in mind too that a lot of that multiplayer stuff is not even found in the actual game itself like the the, the main game focuses mostly on the the plot of the movie with a couple extra bonus stages yeah i mean it's, it it follows the, the the movie's plot pretty closely right yeah uh, this is where multiplayer was still something that was relatively new for gaming or was not considered the prime focus. So I think it was kind of a surprise when the multiplayer took off so much. There yeah. was that huge campaign. And also keep in mind, too, that the multiplayer, there's a lot of modes available for the multiplayer if you entered in all the codes. Yep. Because there was, for those who don't know, that you could enter in codes. And it's not like Game Genie codes that are like hacks. These are like approved put in by the publisher hack code you can put into big head mode yes. big head mode golden eye mode paintball mode uh invisible mode yeah and all you see is a gun you don't see if somebody is... yeah you literally just see a gun floating you don't even see the person you see the see the gun it's um this game the multiplayer took off so well uh Believe it or not, I mean, this game was um, it was made by Rare, so back when Rare and, and Nintendo were still on good terms, but this is actually the third best-selling game for the N64. Behind Mario and Ocarina of Time? Mario, Mario Kart 64 is number two, and Mario 64 is number one. Okay. Uh, but again, I, 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 Mario 64 I don't think deserves that, because again... <laughs> It came with the box. So, <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, third, third most selling, third selling game of the N64. Now for a third party title, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely incredible. And I, I loved this game. I enjoyed it a lot. Now, if we want to jump off of this, I feel like as much as GoldenEye was amazing because of what it did by launching, um, launching first-person shooters as sort of this split-screen co-op fun mode, um, the game that took that and improved upon it and is sort of something that's often forgotten is Perfect Dark. I certainly haven't forgotten about it. <laughs> Perfect Dark made multiplayer, took that multiplayer fun and expanded on it. Um, the campaign I liked more, mainly because, you know, I like James Bond a little bit, but I'm not a huge diehard fan. And Perfect Dark was able to take that sort of feeling and kind of expand it into a sci-fi universe, which was much more up my speed. So I enjoyed the hell out of that part of it, um, for one thing. And also it was able to kind of be more zany and fun. You could have more bizarre weapons. I remember the maulers, the, the, the pistols. I remembered some of the more 
weird weapons. You could have the sniper rifle that could shoot through walls. Not sh- yeah, you could shoot through walls, and you could see through walls with it. And you were able to do all of these really fun things with it. But the thing that took the multiplayer and really made that, where I spent hours and hours and hours with it, was that you could add bots. You could add multiplayer AI bots to play against you. So for me, I was able to play co-op. I was able to take my brother and me and uh, two of my friends, and it was the four of us, and we'd put four to eight bots on, and we'd play with their difficulty levels, and we would go, okay, it's us four versus those eight. We can take them, and then we'd get slammed, and then we'd switch it down to six, where we'd change the difficulty around, and we'd keep kind of jumping in and out, trying to figure out how many computers we could take on. So it was multiplayer, but we were able to, instead of yelling at each other for screen peeping, we were able to take on the computers as a team, and also customize it for ourselves i know you could also make your own kind of playlists of what weapons were on that stage so you were able to make these really really fun scripts where all the weapons were just pistols or you could make it so it was only explosive devices which always ended in hilarity yeah it's, it was there there was that i also felt that i don't know if this was intentional by rare but um you know you had the other uh, video game heroine that was taking off uh, Lara Croft from Tomb Raider. But much less sexualized. Yeah. Um, I mean, unfortunately, our, our main protagonist of Perfect Dark never got that same sort of, of status. You know, not as popular, but it was still an overall very solid game. Yeah. So... Uh, let's go one more from Ron, and we'll, then we'll close this first half. Um, I will start. I'm gonna say end. I guess I'll end this first half off with um, Paper Mario. Go ahead. Hey, g- give me a second to pull up the Wikipedia article because it took me a while to. You had to remember what it was about. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a game that came out near the end of the Nintendo 64's life cycle. And I guess by that I mean like it came out in Japan August 11, 2000. North America came out February 5, 2001. So it's like 6 months to a year before the GameCube came out. Yeah, we're getting we're getting really close to the GameCube at this point. And this was billed as a as an as a, like an action RPG almost, although I, it's not even really action. It is almost a pure RPG role-playing game of uh, like the Nintendo world or like the Mario world, and it's stereotypical. Bowser caps Bowser kidnaps Peach. Mario has to go rescue her, but it's definitely interesting in the sense that the entire game is presented not in a polygon 3 rescuing rescuing peach sort of thing but in a 2D cutout of you and everyone you see is like a 2D paper cutout of and like and and, and interpose on like a 3D landscape almost yep and the entire time you like even if you turn around instead of it being you instead of it being you like physically turning left or right it's just like the paper flips over and 
you, you're you're now mirror image or flipped image, basically. Um, it, is there, am I the one that's played this, or I have? Okay. <laughs> Because I'm kind of floundering here. That's all right. Back up. This was um, this was at the time the second RPG that Mario had been in. Yeah, with and the this first being uh, Super, Super Mario Paper RPG. Su Super Mario RPG for the Super Nintendo. So this was, and I really enjoyed that game. So when I had found out that Nintendo was doing another RPG for Mario, I'm like, yes, <laughs> you have my undivided attention, and. This was one of those rare games that I liked so much that I kind of, I just kind of blasted through it. I, I know this wasn't the case, but it felt like I didn't put my N64 controller down for a week because I just loved this game because it, it felt again, you know, it was, was unlike the later Paper Mario games, this was all, you know, pretty action RPG oriented. Yeah. You know, and it had all the little things like leveling up, and but when you leveled up, you had the ability, you had the option, like, okay, you leveled up. What do you want to gain? Do you want more HP? Do you want more FP, which is your flower points, which was, you know, and that's your magic? Do you want more badge points, which allows you to have more abilities in battle? Special abilities. Um, you also could level up your attack and defense because it was combined at the time, I think. That. Well, that or was that part of badge points? Those were those were badge points. Okay, yeah. Um, you had a unique cast of characters that helped Mario along the way. It kind of you know that particular RPG trope was tweaked a little bit because you didn't have just your party of three. The way it would work was that Mario would go, and then whatever your other whoever was your only other active party member at the time would then go. Yeah, and then your enemies would go and. You had, you know, the, the characters in that game were also, you know, pretty cool. The first one you'd meet was, you know, Goombario. And then you had Cooper, uh, Bombette, uh, Paracarry, which was a paratroopa, uh, Lady Bo, who was a boo, um, Watt, Sushi, and uh, Lackalester. Yeah, th those were your, those were your, uh, additional party members, and, and I'll say they they also had a, a chance someone to affect either something inside or outside of the game. So, so or like I'm sorry, inside of combat or outside of combat. So yeah, they all had um they all had special abilities in and out. Yeah, so like Goombario was like the guy you would use to scout the enemy and scan their abilities and weaknesses and health and stuff like that. Bombette would blow up weak sections of walls. Um, Lady Bo would make you go invisible. So that an enemy wouldn't see you, yep. Yeah, or you could, uh, I think you also fade through certain objects because it made you tr invisible and transparent. Yep. Um, um, you had, uh, Lackluster, which was the Lakitu, so, um, he'd allow you to, um, go across spikes or lava. And, you know, they had this mechanic in the game for combat was that if you uh, hit an enemy before it 
transitioned into the battle screen, you would have the first hit. Yeah. Think of it as a sort of surprise attack. Yeah, surprise round. And then they they can do the same thing to you, where if they hit you before... You notice. (laughs) Yeah. And they get the surprise round. Yep. Um... I like the re- the reason why I guess I, I'm, I'm mentioning this more so is like I remember this game for two particular reasons. One, it was very tongue in cheek with a lot of the like the the jokes and the, like elbow elbow rubs with the, with the fans, and like they're kind of aware they're in a, in, a, in a video game, but they're they're still going along with it because like this is their their world anyway. Oh yeah, very tongue in cheek, which was it's just a, it's a hallmark of the of the franchise, really. That's yeah. very self referential. Um, and the other reason why I remember this game is not for a good reason either. This game was expensive when when it when it came out, and this was due to issues of the cartridge genre back then. Compared to the CDs, which could hold up to 650 megabytes, the cartridges at most could hold 64. This game was on that higher end. I'm pretty sure it was like 32 or 64 megabytes. And I remember this game costing me $75 to buy brand new. I don't remember that, but I'll I'll take your word for it. I remember the game being expensive, partially because I didn't have a huge wallet for these sort of things. But also, I didn't get the game, so I can't speak much of it. Because I remember liking Super Mario RPG so much, I was able to play it at a friend's house during a sleepover, and it fell enchanted with it. And I never was able to get the game for myself. I heard about Paper Mario, I'm like, great, I'll be able to finally play my own. And then when it wasn't what I thought it was, I remember being so upset, I just decided I wasn't going to get into it and didn't like it. it you know, in retrospect you know knowing gaming history and kind of what it was able to do it was a great game i just at that time i still haven't had a chance to play it because i was just remember being angry as a kid well and this is something we can bring up in the second half but there were some manufacturing issues and problems that came up almost immediately after the n64 came out that kind of hurt it as as a console as a whole Fair enough, but yes, that's you know I really enjoyed Paper Mario a lot. It was it was quite quite fun. It was it was again one of those games that as soon as it, as it came up on Virtual Console for the Wii, it was like mine. So, all right. So on our second half, we will continue the theme. We'll t- bring up some more memorable games. You know whether they're you know great games or notorious games. Good or bad. But in the meantime, you will have some music. We'll cut out. And so with that, you are listening to downloadable content as we talk about the 20th anniversary of the the Nintendo 64. We'll be back.
Welcome back to our second half here on Downloadable Content, talking about the N64's 20th anniversary. We are all still here. We have not gone off to try to uh, capture gold sculptulas. Not trying to get all of the different medallions and trinkets. And we are also not shooting up any enemies at this point, although no guarantees. I'll say there's no guarantees for that happening later or not happening later i should say so with that let us press right on we've got some more games on the list we do yeah yes shockingly um i want to talk about a game that uh i don't know if, if many people consider it to be a good game but it is certainly memorable and notorious oh boy um maybe not so much for well, maybe so much for the friendships it would ruin, but also the physical injury that would be inflicted on you. And I'm talking about Mario Party. Uh, yes, I remember getting that game and not knowing what to do with it at first. The game that would destroy friendships, one of many, and... Yeah would do, give you physical injury to your hands because of how some of those mini-games were constructed. Now, this game, it coming out in 1999 over here, it was a really cool concept. Let's take characters from the Mar uh, Mushroom Kingdom, put them on a game board, and have them duke it out to collect the most stars within a certain amount of turns. Play mini games after everyone's gone, whether it was uh, a free for all or one on three or a two versus two mini game. But it was some of those mini games that were particularly memorable because the way you won those mini games was by rotating the joystick in the middle of the N64 controller as fast as you could. And for those who don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll finish this for you. For those who don't know, the joystick on the Nintendo 64 is not your stereotypical rubber pad, analog, thick, thick base. It's this itty bitty, tiny little thin, like toothpick thin, hard plastic on top of a hard plastic dial that has little ridges in it to try and help you maintain grip of the analog stick. Yeah. The, In actuality, you give yourself a goddamn blister. Well, I mean, it was great for your thumb. I mean, because the, the top part of the joystick was, you know, ribbed for her pleasure. It... Uh. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Uh, but, you know, when they tell you rotate the joystick as fast as you can to win the game, most people with a brain, are, they're not, they're not going to go, oh, I'm just going to use my thumb to, to work up the momentum. No, you're going to use the fucking palm of your hand. Palm you, of your hand and rotate that thing as fast as you can. So you play Paddle Battle and you, you win the game, but when you, you, know, you take your hand off and you see that you've peeled away the first layer of skin. <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? And you see that your, your, the entire palm of your hand is this blistery red. Ah! <laughs> and I, you know, being an idiot, would 
so then when that happened, I'd just be like, okay, I'm just gonna put a glove on this hand, and I'm gonna use the other hand! So for, uh, like, a good solid week, I would have, like, fingerless biker gloves on my hand. Because they hurt so badly from Mario Party. And that is the exact reason why uh, Nintendo never re-released that game. You will never see it on Virtual Console or the eShop for exactly that reason. Because Nintendo got hit with some lawsuits and they don't want to open themselves up to that. But injury aside, this game was also particularly memorable for... Um, just how much the computer always managed to seem to get the right series of circumstances to snatch victory away from you at the last second. Well, Nintendo likes doing that in most of their games, let's be honest. Let's be honest, most games, the computer's a cheating bastard. Particularly in Mario Kart, but... Especially in Mario Kart. This doesn't even need to be said. But, but really, <laughs> do we need to expand on that further? But you know, you'd be, you'd think you'd be doing great. You have you know, you're getting stars, and then you know, it's like in the last five turns or so, the computer would be like, okay, we're gonna go to Boo. Here, here's fifty coins. Steal a star, and they're always programmed to steal the star or coins from whoever's in first, no matter who's in first. Sometimes they would get lucky and they would they'd have the star and boo right next to each other so they get two stars on the last turn and just oh There were some very angry expletives coming out of 14-year-old me I mean that hasn't really changed let's be honest That, that yeah, you know that's true that's very true it's I'm just being honest Hey, 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 I, I, I'm guilty as charged. I, <laughs> but I like some of the additions that, I mean, some of the unlockables that you could get with that game, like the, uh, like the, you, the two or the double or triple dice or the item dice or a dice where that allowed you to switch places with another player on the board. I mean, was I the only one who owned Mario Party? No, I played no, it too. I remember having it, yeah. I played it too. It was just a case of I played this game a couple times, realized immediately just how friendship ruining it was, and put it away in a dark corner and never <laughs> touched it. Fair enough. Because, <laughs> like, I don't, know, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't have that many friends growing up. I didn't want to Lose them? Yeah, exactly. Didn't want to lose them. I don't know. I didn't really seem to have that problem, I guess, in comparison. I had a blast playing it with friends. I remember there were some of those games like Paddle Battle that would just break your hand open if you weren't careful. But besides that, I, I had a good time playing it. And, and that game has spawned, I think, now nine or ten sequels. It's like a, it's like a yearly or bi yearly release now for them. Yeah, it's like oh, we need some cash. All right, go ahead. I remember having the first one for the Wii when I got a Wii, and um, little side story: it was Reed and Grendel that came over. And this is right when we were first becoming friends, 
And we started playing the game, and I had three controllers, and I'm excited to show, show it off. And there was one where it was a whole bunch of bouncing balls. It's like, I told them, all right, get the balls of your color. You need 50 of them. And they both just pause the game and look at me. And I went, what's the problem? And they said, I don't know if you knew this yet, but we're both colorblind. <laughs> so whenever I hear of Mario Party, I think of that moment. Womp, womp, womp. It was still hilarious. I think Grendel almost won, even though he's monochromatic. But, <laughs> oops. Yeah. Yeah. Moving right along, who's got mm-hmm. another? I have one that might not be remembered. Well, I have one that might not be remembered, and I have one that I know people have thoughts of. The one that I remember is Battle Tanks. I've heard of it. I've never... I, I, I've never heard of it, so enlighten me. What? Okay, so... Hold on, I'm going to see if I can look up some of the basics for you. Battle Tanks was this weird Mad Max game. It was, uh, what was it? It's called Battle Tank Global Assault. I remember I had the Rumble Pack for it. It was pretty much a third-person shooter, but everyone was a tank. All right. And the plot behind it was pretty much a virus took... This this game, if it was re-released now, would be a cult hit. But it came out kind of before before that point. Um, and the great thing about Battle Tanks was that when it came out, the idea is that there was a virus that hit, hit the world and killed, I think, 90% or 99% of all women. Or, or like ninety five percent of all. So this is the plot of the game: is yes. humanity is having an extinction level event, and the way it worked was that, um, at least in America, the idea was that um, women, the women that were kept left alive were kind of being kept as trophies and prizes, as and there'd be like clans and motorcycle gangs and tank gangs that would kind of grow around the women that were stayed alive and the idea was to keep was to keep them safe and sort of keep the cl- keep that clan or kind of small group going so i'm just remembering the very raw base of it pretty much you're you as the main player your wife is one of the ones that was survived but you guys were split up because you were doctors or you were in a city at the time and you go on a never-ending quest to save your wife or girlfriend by just Getting in your own tank and taking out these bike, taking out these gangs of tanks and motorcycles and everything else along the way, and freeing women as you're trying to find your wife. So it's pretty much like Mario, but with tanks. Okay. And this weird Mad Max. I was was gonna say, so this is this this is Mad Max (laughs) harem harem life simulator. That's what it sounds like. But it was sort of like now take that fun (laughs) bit of Goldeneye, but now add tanks into it. And you're just flat. You're rolling around, blowing up buildings with giant explosives, and you're trying to pretty much get into the enemy base, uh, play capture the flag, but it's women instead, and then you carry them back. So I feel like okay. it'd be really cool if it was redone now because of that whole virus apocalypse epidemic shtick. Because it came out in 1999, so that was before it kind of became super popular. But at the same time, when what I when I think about, Resident Evil was out by then, you could. This is totally Resident Evil bullshit going on here. It's true, but I, I don't think that some of the sexist overtones would do as well as it would. Oh, no, the, the, sexist, the sexist overtones would immediately be turned in, into Gamergate 2.0. Uh, I don't even think it would be Gamergate. It would just be sort of this head desk of like, really? This is the plot? 
I mean, they could probably re-spruce re it up to be something memorable. I just remember playing Capture the Flag games against my brother and be like, aha, I've gotten two of your women. I'm going to come in for the third. And I was... I don't think I'd hit puberty yet, or I didn't really care about that stuff yet, so it didn't hit me that this was weird. It didn't occur to you that you're literally capturing women to breed to keep the human race alive. No, it's just like I had this little inkling in the back of my head, like, maybe, maybe this is wrong on some level, but I just, it didn't hit me yet. <laughs> it didn't hit you that you're literally killing human beings trying to cure the genealogical existence of your of your family lineage. Now, I mean, the thing was that I think for the main plot, you were not one of these gangs. You were just on a never-ending quest to save your wife, and along the way, you were freeing women. And I think the, that was part of the plot, was actually the women were now able to congregate and become So you're Captain America. So, so you were actually one of the good guys, but still, like, the whole context was just like, what the hell is going on? But as a kid, I enjoyed the gameplay. It was really fun. It sort of took the idea of Goldeneye and uh, Perfect Dark and that sort of multiplayer split-screen ridiculousness and just ramped it up Turn to the level. Yeah, because you were able to destroy the environments in the area. It was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, 3DO did go bankrupt um, afterwards. But, uh, what was it? Yeah, Battle Tanks was 1998 and then 1999 was the sequel. And I guess the reason why it never kind of evolved past that point was, one, the new, the new generation or genre of um, consoles was coming out and kind of got left behind when 3DO went under at that point. So, but I had a blast playing All that right. damn game. I, I, I mean, I can see the potential behind it from like a story standpoint and and how it could be fun gameplay. But there's there's certain like like wait a minute, yeah, like suspension <laughs> of disbelief. There's definitely something funky going on here. Let's, let's just take a moment and think about how freaking weird this is getting. Yeah. Um, so I had a blast playing it when I was a kid. And this is, again, remember, this is coming out around the same time we've got Ocarina of Time. We've got all these sort of story epics coming out. So before that point, um, with a few definite rare exceptions, most games didn't really care for a story. I mean, Mario didn't have a story until, until Mario 64, really. It just kind of had this very basic trope and that's how most games were operated so we're moving from that into trying to have games that have a much more wide-ranging plot and battle tanks was this weird it was it was caught in that in between of jumping from needing a plot but also needing to be based just around really really fun gameplay and it, it was able to do both i remember being riveted by the storyline from what was that yeah 15 year old me but now looking at it in retrospect it's kind of interesting seeing the differences now okay <laughs> I, 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 I never heard of this until you literally brought it up and you're like so the plot is like humanity is having a social level event alright that that's like nowadays it's like stereotypical what's going on like yeah that happens last every last ship, ship Walking Dead Resident Evil uh the oh uh, what's that bad Tom Cruise time travel bullshit movie Edge of Tomorrow Edge of Tomorrow which was actually based on a manga, but that's besides the point. And it's like, okay, there's something that's like something funky going on, <laughs> but the, but the, but the the reasoning behind what your character is doing is sound, except for the whole <laughs> you're trying to rescue as many women as you can it, for for the normal life for the 
noble idea of being morally right when the actual answer is no, you're probably trying to secure the, the continued existence of the human race. It's just it's kind of fun also to look back at it as just weird point before that that epidemic level sort of plot idea became in almost every other game before it kind of captured the hearts and minds of everyone. It's kind of yeah. it's kind of fun to see it. Um, I, it's actually one of the things that if, if ever comes out for virtual console, it probably won't. <laughs> but to go probably back, probably not. Admittedly, Wyatt, if you want to relive your, your glory days with that game, I, I do know uh, one or two emulators that you could use. We are not condone the use of these <laughs> bullshit. Uh, and yeah, speaking of, <laughs> it's there are a couple of games that I have, uh, one or two games that also are not are off the beaten track here, but Ron, if you've got one. Okay, I've got... I, I, this might be one that only I've played. That's okay. Why it just brought up Battle Tanks, and I okay. I heard of it, Did but I never played play it. Play Star Wars Episode One Pod Racer. I remember that game. I played it. Okay. So, for those who don't know, when Star Wars Episode One came out, this was like the new hotness. This was going to be the game. Uh, like the movie that was going to revitalize Star Wars franchise, and <laughs> and introduce people to a new gener introduce a new generation to the legacy that is the epic of Star Wars, and then we got Jar Jar Binks, and all the problems that came out of Phantom Menace. But the one good thing that we saw was like the <laughs> a lot of the trailer focus was the pod racing section of the movie. Where you're playing little ten-year-old Anakin Skywalker doing this really dangerous thing of racing around on on carts that are literally attached by electrical cable wires to these gigantic jet propeller engines hoisted in front of you at multiple hundreds of miles or kilometers or whatever number or speed they use. And the game's whole point or plot is through the Star Wars epic of trying to stop the Droid Federation from embargoing a planet. No, you're gonna go around and race people in your goddamn suicide suicide cockpit. You know, like you do. Yeah, like you do. I mean, it is a normal, stereotypical, generally speaking, racing game. But the idea, but the general thought process of you, you are, you are, in some cases, quite literally, a dude strapped to a rocket, hurtling through environments at breakneck speeds. That you really shouldn't be. Yeah. I remember just, playing that. Well, I remember having fun with it. It's just this dumb, like a dumb fun game, basically, is what I'm trying to say. It's like, this is a game you can sit down and play for, like, 20, 30 minutes and just, like, Try and see just how fast you could go. So, and, and I immediately think of F Zero. Yeah, like this is like an F Zero type game almost. I mean, I saw Episode One, the movie, like once, and that was that was enough for me. And I mean, I could certainly see the appeal for it. it don't, no surprise that somebody would have thought. Hey, let's take this racing part of the movie and turn it into its own game. 
I mean, to be honest, if you go back and look, go back and look at the trailers for the movie. There's like a little bit of Obi Wan and Qui Gon lighting up lightsabers against the dual wielding edgy McEdgerson Darth Maul. He was edgy McEdgerson. I resemble that remark. <laughs> I liked him. He was okay. I guess. <laughs> to be completely honest, he's fine. He's he's a, he's a fine villain. The idea of a double-ended lightsaber is... Yeah. I'm not a Star Wars fan, so I'm just kind of talking out of my butt right now. Don't yeah. worry. But Say like, what you will. But, but most of that movie is literally them... Like most of the most of the trailer is literally like itty bitty young Anakin Skywalker being this cute little like ten year old, and he's just like I just want to have fun and do things to help help mommy. And then you get the epic the epic like pod racing scene. And that's when the trailer ends. And I'm just like the, the movie. <laughs> I planned. <laughs> Why did they include the pod racing scene, which is like arguably the best part of the movie, when it has no, in complete honesty, it should have no relevance on the actual overarching plot of that film. Mm-hmm. But they made a game out of it, so there you go. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the game itself, the game itself, is actually not that bad. If you like racers and you know, like your F Zero type games that are Wipeout. Then you probably have some fun with this. So as we as we are still digging into the pool of relative obscurity on the N sixty four, a game that I owned and still I never finished it, but I loved it. Um, it's a, another first person shooter called Turok Two: Seeds of Evil. <laughs> I was not allowed to keep one? that game. I was not allowed to keep that game because it was considered too bloody. I remember secretly renting it and playing that game because of the ridiculous multiplayer. You rebellious Catholic, you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I wasn't Catholic. I was Protestant, you jerk. <laughs> you're going to insult this, my religion, at least insult it correctly. The, Fine. Is this, <laughs> is this the one with, um, you're playing like a bounty hunter, monster hunter type guy, and you're going on an island that's got like dinosaurs on it that, that you, was the first game okay that you hunt and ride i guess i never played the first game i just played the second okay well it's just a lot of the second game the second game uh i actually was recently playing this because uh i have an emulator but uh you um are playing as somebody who is he's become the new turok and that you've been summoned by this uh this blue alien-looking creature. I don't know if it was a precursor to the Asari from Mass Effect or what, whatnot. I just, I just remember, you know, 13-year-old me wondering how a blue-skinned female alien could have such a ginormous rack. But that's beside the point. That's the stereotypical of the, the genre back then, though. <laughs> Where, like, okay, for those who didn't grow up back then... Most years back then were either GoldenEye S clones or Duke Nukem gigantic, gigantic rats and, and cheesy one-liners. So anyway, this alien saying uh, saying that there's this um, there's this creature, this, this powerful alien called the Primogen, and Primogen is the main antagonist to the game, and the Primogen was. Uh, 
He was imprisoned in the wreckage of his spacecraft after he was trying to conquer a, a failed attempt to conquer somewhere called, I think, the Lost Lands. And to do that, the Primogen has to destroy these devices called the Energy Totems and has re uh, released a bunch of, of dinosaur forces to try to destroy these Energy Totems. And so your objective in each level... Um, the overarching objective for every level is to protect the energy totem, but you have other objectives that um, must be met in each level. Although not all of them are mandatory, interestingly enough. Um, most of them are, but some of the ones that aren't mandatory, depending on how many objectives you complete, will determine the ending you get of the game. And there's a bunch of different weapons that you can find during the game. My personal favorite is the Cerebral Boar. Oh, I remember getting murdered by that a few times. Uh, what is this weapon? Is, is, is it quite literally a crazy, like, remote control boar? It's, it's, it's... By, a, by that I mean, like, a pig with a gigantic tusk on the, on the front of it? No, as in boar, as in B-O-R-E. <laughs> Oh, so it's a drill. It's a, it's a, it's a, you fire this, um, it's a homing projectile that latches onto, uh, the skull of an enemy, bores into their brain, and then explodes. Oh. So, okay. so. You know what Sarah Palin said? This. Drill, baby, drill. <laughs> Maybe she should have been an enemy in this game, but, um. Oh. But it's a first-person shooter, so you can run, jump, swim, dive, whatever. You know, you have the you know your health in the lower corner, along with the ammo for your whatever weapon you happen to be holding at that particular appointment. Um, this was particularly interesting because you know, exploration was is incredibly important, and in this game you unlock cheats. But you know, this was around the time when you know AOL was the shit, so. I would go on, uh, there was this, uh, my stepbrother had this before he sold his entire N64 wholesale to me. Um, he discovered a cheat off of, I think, what was the hell was the site? It was Game Sages or whatnot. Uh, and you put in this cheat and the, the cheat code was Oblivion is at hand. And that cheat unlocked all weapons all it was the it was the master cheat. It unlocked everything. The world is yours. Basically. So you're going going around the first level, for example, with these weapons you're not supposed to have, like a nuke. <laughs> Which basically is just is, is it just clears the board. Um you have all the abilities so you could you can jump into places that you normally aren't supposed to get to early on because one of the interesting things about this game was that once you beat a level, it took you to this central hub and you can go back to levels that you beat to try to um, to accomplish the secondary objectives. So, when I was younger, I never got past the first level because I was just having too much fun with that cheat, just blowing shit up. <laughs> so I've been playing now on, on an emulator for Sirius, trying to actually beat it. And it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. I enjoyed it 
you know, and again... And the thing with me about first-person shooters is that, uh, unfortunately, I can't play FPSs for very long. Otherwise, I will get profound motion sickness. I will get a splitting headache. Only FPSs do that to me. So, I play, I play this game in small doses. But it's a lot of fun. So, moving along. I've got one that most people forget about, but as soon as you hear the name, you remember it. And I think this is a cult classic to this day, and people don't know why they have not made a sequel. Pokemon Snap. Oh, yes. Pokemon Snap. Exercise one, your one inner photographer. The, yeah. One, one of the two, like, like, Pokemon console games that came out back then. Mm-hmm. Um... I there was also Pokemon Stadium, but that yeah. one was kind of more hit or miss. It was fun, but it wasn't overwhelming and like didn't cause obsession like Pokemon Snap. Yeah. For those who don't know, you quite literally played a photographer on a rail shooter. Instead of shooting people or Pokemon, you're literally taking photo shots of them. Or fo- photo shots, I guess. Yes. Is the word I was going for. You're taking and pictures. You're, t- you're taking yes, thank you. You're taking pictures of them, and the whole point of the game is to get as, as high of a score as you can to get put in Pokemon Photo Monthly or something like that. And it was just fun because it was just outright fun. I didn't have to hide the game at all um, because there was nothing violent about it. My mom was a naturalist or is a naturalist. So I showed her, like, hey, look, we're doing sort of a safari jungle snap, and she thought it was hilarious. Um, it was a great game that kind of proves that games don't always have to be violent or even have any violence whatsoever in them to be fun, honestly. Or major replayability. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest, once you, like, beat, quote-unquote, beat the game, and by that I mean getting, like, high scores, like, you don't really have any, any need to play it again. Because there's, there's, like, no replayability, really. <clears throat> See, I'm going to argue with you on that one, because I remember replaying some of those levels over and over and over again to get the highest score I possibly could. Yeah, but, like, once you got the highest score and you, and you got pictures of all 150, because all 151 were in there, like, there was no need to play it again. <laughs> but the trick was trying to get all 150, and for yeah. me, at least at that time period... I had to replay those levels a lot, so I definitely got my money's worth out of that game. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying like there there wasn't a lot of like the play play to it because some of them were not easily found. A lot of them you had to somehow achieve very specific scores hitting to actually have the legendary Pokemon show up. Like <laughs> memory serves. Like, like you only reason you can like no, memory serves. You only got a picture of Moltres is if you had a high score leading into the volcano, and the volcano would erupt because of your high score, and he would emerge from it. She, mm-hmm. it, whatever. I just find it interesting that this is this is a rare one of those rare games that uses photography as a major gameplay element. As mm-hmm. in the only gameplay element, 
I mean, you have other games that use photography as as a main element, like Beyond Good and Evil or Dead yeah. Rising, but Fatal they're still, Frame. They're still yeah, but they're still pl- platforming or shooting or exploration of some kind in those games. In in Pokemon Snap, it's quite literally you with a camera and nothing else. It was, it was, you know, it was apparently well received. I mean, obviously, Wyatt had a blast with it. Mm-hmm. I, re- I don't think it was a bad game. It's just, it was something that Nintendo was trying to do. I remember pl- yeah. playing this for a few minutes um, at a blockbuster. <laughs> you know, as if we needed further proof to to, to date ourselves here. Uh, I think I rented it, and once I beat, once I once I finished renting it from the blockbuster, I was done. But not too bad. Pretty cute. And, you know, definitely you know, a, a ton of fun for for some of us. I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And then went back to whatever. <laughs> so Pokemon Snap, I do remember that. I, I also did like Pokemon Stadium because this is like the first major console game where Pokemon battling. Holy shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now and d- you could, in theory, have your... Pokemon from Pokemon Red and Blue be used in the battling. And now I'm just waiting for that full Pokemon game for a major console instead of just handheld, but that's another uh, Yeah. That's another thing for another day. Rolling along! What else do I have on my list? dum de dum dum um, a game that I spend many, many, many hours, uh, Star Fox 64. Yep, I played that. That was, uh, I mean, it's, it's Star Fox. It's, it's, it's classic, it's, it's classic it's, Star Fox. Yeah, it's classic Star Fox only in, in 64. So, but it's still in on rails progression shooter. It is. And, and we have, you know, finally our, uh, it it, it it was the game that gave me a hatred of Falco. I love Falco. You would. Is <laughs> this also where Dual Barrel Roll? Yes, Dual Barrel Roll. Yes, because in the original Star Fox, their their lines, you know, whenever they spoke to you, I mean, all you that came out was now they had actual spoken words, so you had you know, Dual Barrel Roll. Yeah, like it's trying to teach you the mechanics of the game. Fine, sure, whatever. But it, it yeah. <laughs> there's definitely they they definitely could have worked a bit more on the voice acting. I will say this though, it was pretty neat seeing, you know, the final boss, which is Andros, uh, not looking like a theater mask. Yeah, it's an actual pixelated uh, face now. Yeah, it's an actual face. It's a it's an you know. Or polygon face, I should say. You know, this big old ape face. And if you uh, played it on a harder difficulty, you would get Andross's true form, which was just a brain with eyes. Because that's not good old-fashioned nightmare fuel. Yeah. <laughs> but some of those levels, you know, got pretty challenging. And, and I actually played this game many, many times after I'd beaten it, you know, a dozen times, just so I could try to see if I could kill enough enemies in each level to get the medal. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know that was that was a ton of fun I, I have that on on my Wii as well um I've never played Conker's Bad Fur Day but I know a lot of people who have I, I've never yeah. played either I remember seeing commercials for it and knew immediately this would be a game that I could never play because this was a game that my parents would not allow me to play yep it has swearing in it <laughs> um a banjo kazooie. Yeah, Pando's kazooie was one I was going to mention. Uh, there's also the sequel, Banjo Tooie. Yep. Uh, you have Yoshi's Story, which was cute. Yeah, that was a, a very very cute game. But I actually owned this was one of the games that I actually owned multiple copies of because I had it for PlayStation One and I had it for N64. I had Resident Evil Two. And funnily enough, Resident Evil 2 was the only Resident Evil to come out on N64. You didn't get one or three, you had just two. That's weird. And I actually kind of liked the N64 version better than the PlayStation version for a couple of reasons. One, um, you had all four games, all four storylines on one cartridge instead of two different discs. Um, the load times were faster because they were, and there was a few, a few little extra things like extra documents that you would find that weren't in the PlayStation version, which further expanded upon the plot of Resident Evil 2. And I, that was, and I think by that point, the, they had... Capcom had released the version of Resident Evil 2, which gave your character the ability to auto-aim, which was nice. Instead of having, like, oh, shit, there's um, there's five zombies, you know, surrounding me. I actually have to maneuver my character in position so that I could line up the shot. No, there was none of that. Um, I know there was the Tony Hawk Pro Skater games as well. That but got really, that got an N sixty four release. Yeah, one, two, and three. They they had their own versions. They had um, different. That's what I played. They had. Like, I don't remember if it was different music or different stages or different skaters or skateboarders, but I know that they were on the N sixty four as well as the PlayStation. But that again, that's one of like the few multi console games that came out back then, actually. I did not think Tony Hawk got a multi-platform release, but, well, there you go. I also actually had Mortal Kombat Trilogy on the N64, which, another one I thought was far superior to the PlayStation version for one major, major reason. On the PlayStation version, well, and, well if you know anything about Mortal Kombat, you know that the character Shang Tsung can change into any Mortal Kombat character and assume their moves. Yeah. On the PlayStation version of Mortal Kombat Trilogy, anytime Shang Tsung changed into a different character, the game would actually stop because it would have to load that character. So you'd be fighting, 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 and then suddenly the game stops. You see the word... Wait, wait, wait five seconds to load the, the, the correct memory cache and... Yeah, the word loading would pop up on the screen and for about 10 seconds or so. And then the, the fight would resume after he changed. And then 
You know, after 30 seconds or so, he'd have to change back into Shang Tsung so the game would stop again. <laughs> so that it would load back into Shang Tsung. And I was like, and I felt, and that doesn't happen on the N64 version. It's just a smooth changeover. One of the advantages of cartridges. <laughs> and away you go. I know it's not a, so much a game. I can talk about other games that were coming out for that. You know, um, we had Diddy Kong Racing. I like Donkey Kong 64. There was my first adventure game that I really tried to get 100% completion on. So I remember having some fond memories playing games like that and Majora's Mask with my brother. We'd actually have a notepad to write stuff down on to try to figure things out. So I know that's one reason why I have fond memories of the N64 is kind of what I was graduating into having more critical thinking skills just as a person. So I had some games I had a lot of fun with that. Um, but I also remember um, one thing that really changed things was the Rumble Pack, which was something that was brand new in gaming. And I think we need to talk about that for a moment. I know, yeah. This was the generation where we started actually getting Rumble in our controllers. You had Sony do it with their controller for PlayStation, and now N6, and now Nintendo's getting in on the fun. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the Rumble Pack came out second after the... Um, the 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 Dual Shock came out for the PlayStation. I could be wrong on that though. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. That I'm not sure of. I I remember I had my N64 before anything else. So I remember when I added the Rumble Pack and I'd go back and play a Zelda game and just be like, "Whoa, this is so weird and new." I just remember having some really strong thoughts about that. Yeah, I gotcha. Um. And and to go along with what Brian was talking about earlier about the the advantage of playing more, like Mortal Kombat trilogy on the on N sixty four compared to the PlayStation, there were particular advantages to playing some games on N sixty four compared to the PlayStation, um, because the games were always on cartridge, the, it was easier to access the content on them because it's just faster just due to. In our it's all there. Design. Yeah, it's all there compared to the disc where you had to have the disc read it, have then have the, the, the PlayStation analyze it and then process it and display it on the screen. And that was like the main advantage. And that's what, like, what one of the things that Nintendo wanted when they designed the thing, they wanted it to be like readily accessible readable information compared to the 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 CDs at the time but that limitation but there was hardware limitations too back then there people didn't know how to properly develop process design flash memory because that's basically what this was almost compared to now where you can get going to a, any any Freaking uh, PC parts store and buy literal gigs of RAM for like 20 bucks or buy a flash drive that can hold 20, 30, 40, 60, 100 gigs of data for 10, 20, 30 bucks. Like, you didn't have that technology available to you back then. That was all like stuff that came about just due to advancement in technology. Um, 
going back to the Rumble Pack, actually, the Rumble Pack beat the Dual Shock. I thought so. Yeah, okay. the Rumble Pack. I thought it was the first. The Rumble Pack was the first. The Rumble Pack was um, introduced in the N64. It was released in April 1997 in Japan, July 97 here, whereas the Dual Shock came out in November 1997 in Japan. So yeah, the Rumble Pack beat the Dual Shock, and the, the the thing, the nice thing about the Rumble Pack was is that it was removable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like, I and like to go back to the memory thing. Like that's part of the, and also the just the cost of making a, a literal tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of cartridges with motherboard chips for the things to read. Like, that's a lot more expensive than just pushing out a whole bunch of discs. Yeah. And that was my issue with the Nintendo 64 compared to the PlayStation games was I can go into any Best Buy, GameStop, Funko Land, Toys R Us, what have you, and pick up a PlayStation game for 30, 40 bucks, whereas any N64 game, I had to pay 50, 60, sometimes 70 or 80 dollars. Not to mention the eventual expandable the expansion pack for the for the N64 to have more memory for playing games like Majora's Mask, even though I didn't play it. I know there's other games that required it. Um, And that was another 30 bucks or so, I think, at least. Compared to the PlayStation, which I mean, all you bought for it was either a controller or a memory card, and that was it, really. Hmm. So, you know, to wind this down, so it's been 20 years since the release of the N64. How do you think, on the whole, it has stood up or not? I think it's remembered as a relic, honestly. And I think I also think it's seen as an oddity, simply because after this point, with the PlayStation 2 and everything that came after it, you know, when PlayStation 2 came out and the Dreamcast died, a lot of gaming systems for a while became very, very, very standardized. So controllers became standardized. Um, A lot of you would see a lot of repeats of the exact same genres over and over and over again, especially during the kind of console generation that came after the N64. Um, Even Nintendo kind of made GameCube, which was sort of to be a a lighthearted, friendly version of a console workhorse that the PlayStation 2 or the Xbox was. Um, So for me, going back to the N64, when it has a very, very irregular controller when you have to attach manually the rumble pack and when it has cartridges, all things that have kind of fallen by the wayside in a lot of ways. Um, it's interesting. I think it's kind of great to excavate it and kind of see what the N64 was able to pull off for its time period. But it's definitely something that's been left in the past for a lot of reasons. Yes, a lot of good games came out for it. And yes, we're able to kind of bring those back up because of the virtual console system that Nintendo now has in place. But for a while there... Um, it was left in history, and I think a lot of people want to keep it there simply because of how odd it was in comparison to a lot of the consoles 
and the way that the gaming market evolved after that point. I don't even think it's the fact that this was something that it's a relic. I, I like to, by and large, Nintendo. Like this, to me, this is the the signaling of the the downturn for Nintendo. Like after the blockbuster sales they had of the NES and Super Nintendo, they they tried to keep that momentum going with the N64, but already like in even in development leading up to it, like the the, the break away from Sony and not developing a CD drive to attach to the, the Super Nintendo or not sticking with Sony to develop to help develop their next consoles. Um, using cartridges to instead of CDs for their games, which was like, like a decision that they decided upon. Like they knew that there was advantages and disadvantages and they felt like cartridges were still better over over CDs. So, like, th- th- there were certain design philosophies that went into this that caused problems. Uh, yeah, it caused problems for them and had them lose their major market share. I mean, uh, looking right now, worldwide, th- this is this is worldwide sales of units shipped, thirty-two point nine three million. That's not that bad. I mean, all things considered, that's, that's pretty decent. And then we go to the PlayStation, which admittedly came out a year a year almost before the right. Uh, it, it got it, it had a year's head start. Yeah, it had a year's head start. Which okay, that's fine. Like it has a year head start, but you, it wouldn't be it shouldn't be that bad, right? Units sold worldwide, hundred two point four nine million. They more than tripled the sales of the Nintendo sixty four. And I don't care how much of a head start you have. If you're like, there's definitely something wrong with your console. If you can't even beat the, if you're if you're literally less than a third of the sales of the number one person. I think this is. I think you're right. I think that this is sort of an interesting point in history in gaming because this is when Nintendo was in its heyday. The N64 was lauded for what it was able to pull off. It was considered a great system. It was considered very strong. Some people were starting to, by the end of its existence, starting to be like, well, you know, CDs are going to come out, or cartridges or CDs going to win. Um, and Nintendo very much came down on the wrong side of that for a while. They, they, they stuck to their guns a little bit longer than they should have. And it caused issues for Nintendo in the console market. Now, obviously, Nintendo's done better in other ways, like, for example, handheld gaming. It's it's held onto that hook, line, and sinker. It's just, um, it's interesting to see where things ended up. Yeah. And and it's, it's also a case of, like, like, the, the hardware they used back then wasn't even bad either. Like the cons- like the console, I think arguably is stronger than the the PlayStation was from a technological standpoint. It's just I feel like the combination of designing a game to be used on a cartridge, which could have anywhere f- from one twentieth to one tenth of the storage space of a of a CD. 
combined with the fact of like it's a it's 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 more expensive, it's longer to manufacture cartridge than it is to make a CD. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there's I mean, there's still issues here with third party developers seeing their games on the on Nintendo consoles. Now it's not nearly as bad as it was for the NES and Super Nintendo, but it's still like there's still I mean, look at the how many third party games are on the PlayStation compared to the N sixty four. it's like at least like maybe a quarter as many on or three or four times as many on the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. And part of that's probably part of that's due to the cost of developing the game, publishing the games on CDs, but it's also just due to the like the quality that Nintendo wanted in their games on on, on their consoles. It's always interesting to go back to these times in history where technology diverges and see where people end. Yeah. And this like, is just one where there was definitely a dead end to cartridges in at least in the consoles and handheld it's held out, but I, well, I mean, it's a dead end in at that current point in technology based upon how hardware architecture was able to reach like the limits of back then. Nowadays right. You can. There's arguments for us going back to, like flashcards and and cartridge-based things because of how cheap and easy it is to manufacture them compared to making discs, which can. I mean, sure they can hold as much data, but you have the read time issue compared to the 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 general overall benefit of near instant access of the data on flash drives. And be that as it may, I mean, this was... It was... The N64 and the GameCube were probably... That was a period of... Like, Nintendo just sort of... trotting and plodding along. I mean, you, you you pulled up the numbers, Ron. You had you know, almost 33 million units sold for the N64. You got almost 22 million out of the GameCube, and then the Wii with you know over a hundred million. So the yeah. the N64, and and then you have Wii U, which I think might be their worst. They're only at a 12 million total. But um, yeah, this was a period of you know, Nintendo and. And we've said this before on downloadable content. Nintendo has always marched to the beat of its own drum. Always. And yeah, always have and probably always will. Always will. The, and which is at both simultaneously refreshing and frustrating. Well, it's their greatest strength and also their greatest weakness. Because when Nintendo's on point and Nintendo is firing on all cylinders, they are literally They're, setting the trend for the next generation. For they're the, the next kings. console generation, yeah, they're, they're the kings. Like they, they, they almost single-handedly brought back to the console video gaming in America after the the cart the the console the video game crashes in the early '80s, and they kept they they literally had a a a, a stranglehold on the market for from like the mid '80s all the way to 1995. Yeah, and it's only. And, and then, like, after they 
like again, like they stuck to their drones on the cartridge thing. They stuck to their their guns on like quality software and wanting quality quality games on their consoles. And and because I mean, at the time they had no reason to doubt themselves. But yeah, you know, they they in their desire to be very creative, they they sometimes miss the mark entirely, and. I don't think I don't think the N sixty four completely misses the market. I mean, we've talked about some really great titles, and I'm sure yeah. there there are others. But you know, this with the, at this point in video game history, you know, the late nineties when things like cartridges are no longer the only way to get your console games, and with third-party developers specifically, you know, third parties also, you know, they look at Nintendo consoles and they see those types of consoles and those controllers. I mean, remember the N64 controller. They look at that controller and they're like, we don't want to touch it. Yeah. And I mean, it's a common saying that the only, and I, the only people that know how to make a good Nintendo game is Nintendo. Yeah. And, like, we say that partially in jest, but it's... I Honestly, after 20-some-odd years, 30 years of playing Nintendo games, it's kind of true. Like... I don't know why third parties uh, have such a problem with Nintendo consoles, especially in the last couple of generations, but they do. And... and they, 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 they definitely do, and part of that's probably due to controller design. Part of that's probably due to hardware limitations compared to the like the more recent versions of the PlayStation, and the Xbox, and all, I, th- I feel like part of that's also just due to the standards that Nintendo wants. Like they don't. They're not probably saying they want to have high standards of video games, but there has to be the mental mindset of oh, yes. whenever a third party goes to them being like, if we're going to polish on Nintendo, we got to make sure we have a great A title because anything less, then we're, then we're going to be losing literal millions of dollars making this game for, on a Nintendo console. So. But as for the N64 itself, I mean, it, it, was, it was a solid system, but... I, I personally would probably not want to have, you know... It, for me, it, its time has definitely passed, with the exception of, of some games that we continue to play today, like Smash, for example. Smash, or Arena Time. You know, Nintendo, I think, has also moved on from that as well, because they've they've kind of put that away. They always do. Anytime a new console comes out, the, the old one's immediately dead. So... Yeah, and... I, I I hope I, I I guess I'm hoping with the next Nintendo console, which we already know the name of and we know the the general the release date time frame of it. I'm hoping that this is something that they can. I, I'm hoping that it, they do a little bit of generalization in terms of console design and controller design. But I am hoping that Nintendo is at least able to come out with a bunch of games and want to encourage people to come to their console. 
but that remains to be seen. So anything, any other uh, thoughts on the N64 before I put this to bed? I think we've pretty much nailed it. I, and I, I think yeah. it's a great thing to re- revisit and return to. But at the same time, it's time has passed and it's good just to remember it for what it was able to give yeah. us. Yeah. The, the general overall grade of the Nintendo 64. Console design, like general hardware architecture, everything. It's like a B. It's decent. It's not bad. It's not great. The games are pretty solid. But, gen- but again, compared to marketing decisions, there's certain hardware decisions that definitely hampered Nintendo. Alrighty. So if anybody out there on the internet has any uh, questions, thoughts, ideas, comments on this episode, if you have any strong feelings on the N64 or any other episode, again, you can get to our website and let us know. It's www.dlcpodcast.com. Send us feedback. Listen to all episodes. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd, we'd like to hear them. So, with that, I think we've uh, we've done it. We've done a pretty good job on this episode again. Thank you, Wyatt, for jumping on this episode. Be sure to check out Sprites and Dice for crazy gaming blog. <laughs> thank you. And once again, Ron, thank you as always for living on DLC. Yep, well, I'm going to go clean up my closet right now. Yeah, you, you go do that. And with that, I'm Brian. Have a good one, everybody. 